We are in the middle of a series through the book of Ephesians, and Ephesians is all about togetherness, togetherness. And when we think about togetherness, it's a kind of an awkward word. We don't necessarily say that word uh, in our normal vocabulary, but it, it is something we need to understand is different than being together. So here's the definition of together. Together is multiple things in one place. That's not very exciting, right? Multiple things in one place. But togetherness has a, a far more rich definition. Check this out. Togetherness is a happy feeling of affection and closeness, experiencing life in harmony of relationship and harmony of common cause. Isn't that exciting? It's a happy feeling. We need more of that. Of affection and closeness, we need more of that. Experiencing life in harmony of relationship and common cause. We need that more than ever. We need to be not just together in one place. We need togetherness. Agreed? Of course we agree. We are as polarized and as mad as I have ever seen this nation in my lifetime. And as a bit of a student of history, it's feeling like a little bit of the ramp up to the tensions of the 1960s. And we don't want to see that happen. We see an outpouring of grief and anger, and much of it is understandable. And we need to rally around each other and support each other and not kind of, you know, uh, disperse to our camps and start lobbing accusations against each other. We've got to bring calm and peace, and that comes through togetherness, that happiness, that affection, that closeness, that camaraderie of relationship and common cause. We need togetherness. So, so relationship and common cause are key because when we just go to our different corners and in our different camps, we don't get to know each other. We don't get to know our stories. And then, and then our causes can sometimes come across as very distinct and different, and then we have a clash of causes. But here we are as the church, and I'm going to talk to the broader church, and later I'm going to talk about the specifically the evangelical church. We need to examine our cause so that where our causes are competing, we can find common ground and maybe adjust our hearts and maybe adjust our church and, and, and find ways that we can be truly, not just together, but experience togetherness. We need a reset. Some of us need a reset of, of our own hearts. Some of us need to experience a reset in the church of Jesus Christ, particularly the evangelical church of Jesus Christ. Now, it used to be, and still is a little bit true today, if your device or your computer gets a little bit wonky, what do you do? You restart it, right? You just hit the button, hold down the button, whatever, and you restart the thing. And when you restart the thing, maybe it includes a software update and, and it can work better again. Uh, my wife, I love her deeply, but she's technologically challenged. She's getting better. <laughs> and, and sometimes I'll ask, oh, my phone's getting slow. Have you updated the software? And I, every single time, no. <laughs> okay, update the software, restart it. And let's go with a, with a brand new set of codes, right, that can function better. And I think the church, particularly the evangelical church, and some of our own hearts, we need updated software. We need to say, you know, the old way of thinking just may not have been quite right. We might need to reform our way of thinking so that we can better align with the cause of Christ in our own hearts and in our churches. John 13, 34, Jesus makes it very clear. A new command I give you, that you love one another. That you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Jesus is the very model for what it means to love. And so what Jesus did, we do. How Jesus loved, we loved. As Jesus sacrificed, we sacrifice. That's the mission. That's the cause. That's what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And minutes after he said that, love each other as I have loved you, what did he do? He gave his life on a cross. 
He gave himself to be arrested, falsely accused, brutally tortured, murdered in the streets of Jerusalem to show how much God loves the world. How much God so loves the world that he gave his only son, particularly the marginalized, the powerless, the abused, the sick, the poor, and the oppressed. That's who Jesus spent his time with. That's who he befriended, and that's who he loved, and that's who he raised up and said, you walk with dignity, and you walk in freedom, and you walk in strength. Now go, being made in the image of God, everyone, everywhere, made in the image of God, equal dignity, equal respect, equal opportunity. But Jesus also looked to those who were privileged, and he said, listen, you've got a responsibility. For those of you who have, for those of you, Jesus says, who have much, much is required. For those of you who have a lot, much more is required. So Jesus says, yes, if we are privileged, we do have a debt to people who are marginalized, oppressed, are without. There is a debt there. In fact, Jesus even said in Matthew 16, 24, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself, take up his cross and follow me. This is the invitation. It's not necessarily a pleasant invitation. We don't follow Jesus because we're going to become wealthy if we do. We don't follow Jesus because he's going to answer every single prayer that we pray. We don't follow Jesus because he's going to make our life better for us. We follow Jesus because it's an honor to lay down our own lives. And this is in the heart. We lay down our lives for the glory of God, for the cause of Christ, for the betterment of others, particularly those who Jesus made better. Now, I'm going to go through a bit of American history, and I'm going to weave in some thoughts about particularly the evangelical church and the Republican Party, because keep in mind, uh, the, this series through Ephesians is about reforming our heart and reforming our church, and just so happens that most of us that experience Rancho Church online or live, we come from the stream of the evangelical church that I believe needs to be reset, updated software, reformed and renewed, right? Call it whatever you want to. This is the time. This is the time to, to have that introspective look and to say, where do I need to grow? Where do I need to reform? Where does the church that I'm involved in need to grow and need to reform? And let's do it. This is the time, and I'm telling you, it's not easy. So hang with me. I know sometimes you, you call out you know, a political party in, in some ways and you call out a specific segment of the church. It's very easy, natural, and normal to get defensive. Just hang with me. I promise it'll be great. Hang with me. I promise this is all about love and unity and relationship and common cause. But sometimes we have to put in the hard work of self-soul surgery and, and to say, okay, God, where where is my head not aligned with the cause of Christ? Where's my heart not aligned with the cause of Christ? Where's my church not aligned with the cause of Christ? Then what do I do about it? How do I grow? So let me take you through some history. And again, I will kind of ping around the evangelical church and the Republican Party in particular, because as we mentioned last week, those things have become, you know, almost no daylight between the two. And we need to look at all of it, right? So hang with me. <laughs> Decent church leaders and followers of Christ led the abolitionist movement. So this is the abolitionist movement of the 19th century as, as slavery had consumed, you know, sort of Europe and, and North America, there was time where enough was enough and people had to be free. As New England Protestants, particularly New England Protestants, fueled by a doctrine of free will and a biblical vision of a better world. So this is where sort of uh, the, the church as a whole, the Protestant church, went from doom and gloom into hopeful, almost triumphalism, that, that the world is going to get better and it's in our hands. God gave us a free will to shape the world around us. So this was kind of new or revived, and this is really the theology of the 
great revivals, is that, is that it's in our hands. God, the sovereign God, put in our hands the ability to choose as free agents, and we can shape this world one way or the other, for good or for evil, for the cause of Christ or the cause of man. And so this, this new revivalistic movement really looked at slavery, the ownership of human beings, and said, no way. And so a movement that grew in large part from this Protestant, you could say, evangelical movement to free all human creatures, especially the Southern slaves. This anti-slavery movement, which is with its strong theological and religious support from the Christian church, helped to create the Republican Party. That's how the Republican Party started, right? In the 1850s, that gave us President Lincoln and the Emancipation Proclamation of 1863 that, quote, all persons held as slaves are and henceforward shall be free. That started the Republican Party, the party of Abraham Lincoln. Now, there were those who opposed that, including a segment of the Christian church that could not bring themselves to see their own sin. They were simply on the wrong side of history, the wrong side of, of biblical truth. And in family discussions to this day, as we talk about our great-great-grandparents, we talk about where they stood in this movement. A little bit later, decent churches and leaders following Christ led the post-Civil War era of Reconstruction. This is the Reconstructionist movement, the Reconstruction era, that worked tirelessly, tirelessly integrate former uh, slaves into a new free America. There was a movement called Radical Republicans, and they believed that the population, all population, the black population, was entitled to the same political rights, opportunities as the white population, and they worked tirelessly to see to it that former slaves enjoyed every new freedom. They were called Radical Republicans. Now, there were those in the church that could not bring themselves to see their own sin during that time of Reconstructionism, and they were on the wrong side of history. And to this day, in family discussions, we talk about our great-grandparents and where they stood during Reconstruction and beyond. So a little bit later, decent church leaders and followers of Jesus Christ led the civil rights movement. And I love this picture because it is black and white and lots of religious leaders in there working together toward a common cause of civil, civil liberty. Right? The black community has gone from slavery to the very difficult Reconstructionist movement into Jim Crow laws in the South. And so the work wasn't done, not even close. And so in this 20th century civil rights movement, led by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and his allies of all ethnicities, a movement began. And I will tell you, just as a very complex part of history, Republicans helped break the Democrat filibuster of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now you got to dive into the history, and, and Democrats, by and large, supported it. A few didn't. Republicans, by and large, supported it. A few didn't. But it was a Democrat filibuster that Republicans helped to break in order to pass the groundbreaking Civil Rights Act of 1964. Now, those who opposed that, including a segment of the Christian church that couldn't bring themselves to see their sin, were simply on the wrong side of history. And in family discussions to this day, we talk about our grandparents and where they stood on that issue. You know where I'm going. We have a movement today. It's the 21st century movement, and it's happening now. It's the 21st century movement. It is, it is the moment that we are in right now at this very moment. And as there are marches taking place all over the country, including in our own city, there's this question about where the church is going to stand. It's the same question that happened during the the, the times of slavery and, and civil war and reconstruction and civil rights where the church 
is divided in terms of civil rights and civil liberties. It's divided. Some are on the journey of seeing their sin, the institutional sin, not only in their hearts and in their country, in the structures, but in churches to see the sin, call out the sin and reform. There are those who choose to see it and get on board and those who don't. And I'm telling you, those who don't are on the wrong side of history. The 400 years of American slavery and injustice against people of color must come to an end under our watch. It must. Fueled once again by the truth of God's word and the ministry of Jesus Christ, which continues today through his church. There will be those who oppose the 21st century movement as there were those who opposed the movement toward abolition, the movement of reconstruction to give rights to all, the civil rights movement, and even today, there will be those in the church who oppose it as there was in every movement before. And I'm telling all of us, I'm telling all of you, don't be on the wrong side of history. I'm begging, I am pleading, don't be on the wrong side of history. Don't have your kids and your grandkids and your great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids look at where you stood in this moment of history and be ashamed. It is time to be on the right side of history and the right side of God's word, as we say here, the right side of the cause of Christ. Let's make God proud of his church. Let's make God proud of his church because it aligns with his word and it aligns with the life and ministry of Jesus Christ toward the goal of everyone free, everyone having enough, right? Everyone being loved, equal dignity, equal respect, equal opportunity, and none oppressed. Can this happen? Yes, it can happen. It can happen on two fronts. It can happen if we walk a journey of reforming our hearts. We've gotta reform our hearts. And I'm telling you right now, as honest as I can, my, I want my heart to continually reform. I haven't arrived anywhere. I don't want to arrive anywhere. I want my heart to continually reform. In fact, that's the great kind of you know, phrase of the reformed movement that came out of the Catholic Church that was you know, striving for things like freedom. It's ever reforming according to the word of God. So I want my heart to be ever reforming according to the word of God. Never stop, never content, never stuck. This can happen. This, this cause of Christ, justice for all, can happen if we walk a journey of reforming our hearts and if we walk a journey of reforming our churches and the church, capital C, church globally. It's a reformation movement that needs never to stop. It needs to keep going and going and going according to the word of God. Here's the word of God. Here's the heart of God. This is an impassioned plea from God to his people. This is, these are the, the, the tribes of Judah in the south, the remaining tribes of Israel, and they were a mess. They were perpetrating injustice and listen to God's warning. It is a stark, stark warning. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver them from the hands of the oppressors and do no wrong or violence against the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, nor shed innocent blood. If you will not obey these words, I swear declares the Lord, this house will become a house of desolation. You think God is serious about justice? Take Jeremiah 22, three through five very seriously. He looks at his own people and he says, you're missing the mark. You are perpetrating injustice. You're staying silent against the face of injustice and you, my people, will become a house of desolation and that is exactly what happened. They didn't make it. They didn't survive. This is a stern warning. For those of us who do not take up the cause of justice for all, 
there is this warning that I believe continues today, and it's not like God is going to rain down fire. It's just that when we don't pay attention to justice, when we don't align ourselves with the heart of God, it is chaos. It's societal chaos. It's societal chaos, and societies crumble when justice is not pursued. We're at risk of that. In our own country, it may not, and may it not be. Last week was a big week for Rancho. As most of you well know, Rancho Church has been on a, a decade-long journey of incremental reform. And for those of you who have been around Rancho for about a year, uh, you have been very aware that, wow, Rancho seems to be going in certain directions. And yes, that is true. And it has been incremental. And it's our board and our pastors and our volunteers, volunteer pastors, governing pastors, just thinking and praying and ever reforming according to the Word of God. There's been this decades-long reform to align our values with the values of Christ, align our ministry and mission with the, the cause of Christ as we have stated along in this journey. And aligning our resources and our money, our campus, our assets with the cause of Christ. Last week was just kind of a statement from Rancho on behalf of the board and on behalf of our pastors and many of our key lead teams, is that enough of the incrementalism? Enough of the slow gradual change? This pandemic is terrible, but it's given us a gift. We're, <laughs> the slate is kind of clean. We don't have to keep going with the traditions of the past just because they're traditions of the past. We don't have to keep going with ministries and, and missions and efforts and things that don't align with the cause of Christ. We can kind of set those aside. And when we emerge, we're not going to reemerge to normal. We're going to reemerge to better. And that better is going to be to the best of our ability, guided by the word of God and guided by the Holy Spirit of God. We are going to emerge no longer as a church on an incremental journey of reform. We're not going to emerge normal. We're going to emerge better. And pray for us as a church. If you're not a part of our local community, pray for us because there's a lot of wrestling going on, a lot of reforming of the heart, a lot of reforming of the church. Is instead of this gradual incrementalism, we're going to say, you know what? It's just time. It's just time to be a church that seeks justice and not having to till soil slowly over time to kind of get there and not having to make slow moves of money and people and priorities and ministry to kind of align. It's right now we're going to do it. And it's exciting. I don't have it all mapped out, but it is exciting. doesn't mean we agree on everything, and I want to be very clear about this. We're a church that doesn't have to agree, agree on, on anything. In fact, one of the, 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 well, not on everything, one of the favorite discussions I have with people here at Rancho is when they say, you know what, Pastor Scott, I don't agree. I say, great, tell me why you don't agree, let's have a conversation. Um, some of the time, they'll say, oh, let me think about that. Those are some good points. Sometimes I will say, and I have done it this week, hey, those are good points, let me think about that. Let me wrestle through that, let me pray over it, let me read more. Um, this is a great learning community. We don't all have to agree. In fact, I got between 500 and 600 uh, emails, texts, and messages this week. I, I've lost count, and if I haven't responded to yours yet, I apologize, I've gotten through about 20% right now, and I've got, I'll respond to every single one. I don't have an assistant. I'll respond to every single one personally. But thank you for what you've been saying. And some of you have been very clear. You know what, Pastor? I don't necessarily agree with every, everything you say about this, 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 and this. And I was gonna read one of those emails, I just don't have time. My normal message is nine pages. I came today with 17, and I have no idea how this is gonna wrap up. <laughs> but at some point, the internet will just cut off this stream, and, and, and that'll be that. So wherever we end, we end. But so many people have said, you know what, I don't agree with this or that. But what I do agree on is that something has to be done regarding justice. This injustice between white people and people of color has got to stop, 
and it's got to stop now. It's complex, the journey ahead is extremely complex. Nobody has a simple answer. But on so many fronts, when we are all unified, we can fix this thing. We can absolutely fix it. I have loved receiving uh, countless emails and texts and messages from people of color who have said, you know what, in our country today, I'm beginning to feel as though we're not alone. I'm beginning to feel as though we're not just a voice in the wilderness, but there could be a critical mass emerging. And, And they're beginning to be hopeful. I love that. That has blessed me so much. I've also received uh, plenty of emails from white evangelicals, and, and they're telling me one of three things. A lot of white evangelicals have told me, you know what, I left the church, and here's why I left the church. I left the church because it's mean and unkind. These are generalities, right? These are their experiences. Not everybody is mean and unkind, of course, and, and not even the bulk of evangelicals are mean and unkind, but there is a strong and loud and powerful voice that comes across as mean and unkind. And so a lot of my white evangelical friends have left the church because it just hasn't resonated with them. It's been mean, unkind to LGBTQ. It's been mean, unkind in issues of of race. It's been mean and unkind in terms of immigration and refugees. It's just come across as self-protective and judgmental and I'm out, right? So many people have said, I'm starting to hear that the evangelical church can be aligned again with the heart of Christ. And they're starting to think, maybe I can join it again. Not everywhere, but maybe I can join somewhere that I can really trust. Uh, A bunch of people have said, you know what, I'm still in the church. And this is probably the majority of the emails that I received over this last week. I'm still in the church, but I have been unsettled for years. I dutifully go to church. It's kind of my family. It's my heritage. But I have so much been, been in turmoil about the direction and about the values and about the priorities. And it just doesn't seem to align with Christ. But now I'm hearing something different. I'm hearing something I can get excited about, right? The cause of Christ, the cause of justice, equality and dignity, compassion, reaching out to those who are oppressed and say, we are going to be your allies and partners. Tell us what to do, right? I also spoke with some, very few, mind you, very few, maybe five. I spoke with some who think that black America is afforded every right, every freedom, every dignity, and every privilege of white America. I had those conversations. Some of those conversations are from people who have a a big platform. Those weren't enjoyable conversations. Often with those conversations was an immediate judgment against people of other cultures, immediately. No willingness to do some soul surgery No willingness to say, where is the sin in my life? Where is the sin in in my church stream? But immediately, there's the sin over there. Now, thankfully, this third group was small. And thankfully, that group, I believe, is getting smaller. Last week, I called for the reform of the evangelical church because I fear it is missing the mark and at risk of becoming this house of desolation. And I want to just give you a little story, and then, and then we will dive into the context of Ephesians, and we may get into some of Ephesians 1 today. We will see. But in order to get into Ephesians 1, we've got to get the context. But I want to tell you just a brief story about what it means to, to be a house of desolation. I remember when I was very young, um, my parents pulled me aside and said with grief in their eyes, your, your grandpa died. Your grandpa died. I was very young. I didn't quite know how to process all of that. And, and I just heard conversations around the house. This is to the best of my memory. And, and he had struggled with health issues and chest pains and things like that. And he just ignored, ignored, ignored. He wasn't one to rush to the doctor. 
And, and there was a day where he had extreme chest pains and he just went to the bathroom and locked the door. He went to the bathroom, locked the door, and he sat and he died alone, locked in a bathroom because he ignored the warning signs. You see where I'm going. There's a segment of the church today that I love deeply. There's a segment of the church that I was actually raised in and came to Christ in and was given every opportunity to serve in and now to lead in, right? And so here is my, you know, my spiritual life stream is in the evangelical Protestant church, you know, and I love, I love the church with all my heart. The global church and my home has been the evangelical church, but the evangelical church is very, very sick and I just fear that some, not all, hear me, some, not all, are sick and don't know it or sick and feel the pain of it but aren't doing anything about it. And I fear the evangelical church is beginning to, it's not too late, but beginning to lock itself in a bathroom in a very small cluster of people who are very proud, won't go to the doctor, won't figure out what's wrong. And I'm afraid the evangelical church is going to die alone. That's what it means to, to be a house of desolation when we're not aligned with the heart of God and there's a struggle and there's, there's this anger and there's this sense of loss. I'm losing my traditions. I, there's conversations that are happening that I'm uncomfortable with. I'm being challenged in ways that make me uncomfortable. I wanna be self-defensive. I wanna accuse other people because it can't be our fault, right? And that is, that is resulting in a smaller and smaller evangelical church that, that is becoming more and more angry and more and more divided and, and smaller and smaller to the point where it will become desolate. Do some research on the evangelical church today. It is failing, and people are leaving like it's on fire. And as I've said countless times here at church, I think that's okay. Because unless there's a radical reform of the evangelical church, there are better places to be. There are better places to be. I don't think it's too late, however. And I think the book of Ephesians gives us a roadmap ahead. The book of Ephesians gives us the roadmap to a reformation of our heart. The book of Ephesians gives us a roadmap to the reformation of our church, particularly because of racial tensions. The book of Ephesians is written in the context of racial tensions. And so we can read the book of Ephesians and say, okay, life in America is tense. The church in America is struggling, right? To figure out how we can connect with the culture today and how we can engage in dialogue with the culture today. So we're gonna look at Ephesians. I don't know how long it's gonna take. Again, I, I just have a bunch of pages here and a bunch of stuff on my heart, a bunch of scripture here that's gonna lead the way. I don't know how long the study of Ephesians is gonna take, but I guarantee you it's gonna be a roadmap to the radical reformation of the heart and the book of Ephesians is gonna be a roadmap to the radical reformation of the church. And what I'd like us to do is be humble about that be open about that. As we get into the first verses today, and we will get into the first verses today, just be open to this idea of radical reformation. Read the book of Ephesians as though it's a roadmap toward racial reconciliation and racial harmony, because that's the entire context of the book of Ephesians. Calling a diverse church to racial reconciliation and racial harmony, that's the entire point of the book of Ephesians. That's the entire point of the book of Romans. It's the entire point of the book of Galatians. All of these books that we have read that are in our Bible, they are entirely about racial reconciliation in Christ. That's the thrust of the entire Bible. I've preached about this so many times, but uh, hey, we've got all the sermons online. You can check those out. So here is the context of the book of Ephesians. 
If we, if we want to know what the Word of God says, we have to know the context. So here's kind of just basic Bible interpretation and application 101. It's the most basic stuff. You've got to know the context. Why was the book written? To whom was the book written? What was the message of the time to the reader at the time? We cannot read the Bible and say, oh, how's it speaking to me today? Nobody cares. We've got to really understand how was God speaking then? Through whom? and to whom, and towards what. So first, in Bible interpretation, it's 101, it's basic stuff, know the context. When we know the context, we can then understand the meaning of the context. Once we understand the meaning, then we can apply it to our context. It's really simple. That's just basic Bible study. Um, Not a lot of people quite understand that because it's difficult sometimes to go back to the original context, but it is essential, essential in terms of Bible study and interpretation. So Ephesians. Ephesians uh, is written to the church at Ephesus. The Ephesus was a, a bustling international city at the center of trade. In fact, if you just kind of imagine a map, think of uh, the country of Turkey, the far west coast of Turkey, there's Ephesians right in the center of the far west coast of Turkey. It was this thriving city, multinational, because everybody had to go through that city. If you wanted to do international trade, you had to go through that city. And so it was multi-ethnic and it was very successful. In fact, the word Ephesus means desirable. It was a desirable place, a desirable city and multi-ethnic. Sound familiar? It's a bit like America. You know, we have this incredible economy. I mean, it is the engine of the world and it is multinational. There's a lot of nationalities here. So, So we can extrapolate a lot from Ephesians in terms of racial harmony to not only the church in America, but the country of America. Thriving, successful, multi-ethnic city. It would not be a stretch to compare it to America. Now, the city of Ephesus had a lot of things going for it, including the likelihood that Mary, the mother of Jesus, lived in the city of Ephesus and could have gone to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus had a great and stable leadership in Timothy and this great, stable, loving board of elders, you could say, these governing pastors who led the city well. They also had the great privilege of being a multi-ethnic church, which was incredibly difficult. Briefly, here's the history of the first church. It began as a Jewish movement that accepted Jesus as a long-promised Savior. Within a very short time, uh, an Ethiopian eunuch receives Jesus. I mean, within probably weeks. Now, here's an Ethiopian, a non-Jew eunuch, which meant according to God's word as a non-Jew and as as a sexual eunuch, he was considered by the Old Testament law to be unclean as a Gentile and as a eunuch. Because of his sexuality, because of his ethnicity, the Old Testament would have considered him unclean. That's the Jewish tradition. Now what do you have? This brand new Jewish movement following Jesus receives in an unclean Ethiopian Ethiopian and an unclean eunuch. Scandalous. Within perhaps months, a Roman soldier the invading Roman soldier, the enemy of the people, the, the one you know, in whom he is, he is in camaraderie with crucified Jesus Christ. He receives Jesus Christ as Lord and as forgiver. He's baptized. This is utterly scandalous. So now you have in the early church, this Jewish movement that then embraces Gentiles and there's all kinds of discussion, debate and dialogue is how Jewish do the Gentiles have to be to follow this Jewish savior? 
And the answer over time, and you can see this in the, in the brutally torturous journey of the book of Acts, how the Jewish church accepts the Gentile church, it's remarkable. And they basically say, we are not going to enforce the Old Testament Torah on the Gentiles. Absolutely. We're not going to force them to our dietary laws. We're not going to enforce the, the circumcision. We're not going to enforce them to observe all the feasts and festivals. We're not even going to enforce the full kind of, you know, sexual and moral codes of the Old Testament on our Gentile brothers and sisters. They were not going to enforce the Torah, first five books of the Bible, the books of the law, the Old Testament, on our Gentile brothers and sisters. Why did they do that? They did that because this new movement was a movement of unity that says, you are welcome. You are welcome as you are where you are, regardless of your ethnicity. We follow Jesus. We follow Jesus who reached out to the Samaritans, who, who loved the, the Romans, who reached out to the sinner and brought them in, brought them in, doors wide open. And then there was a journey called discipleship of growing and learning to become more like Jesus over the course of a lifetime, right? That's a humble journey. It's a welcoming journey. It's an open journey, right? That's the first church. And they were basically held together by a couple of tenets. One was... Confess Jesus as Lord and Savior through baptism. And baptism was highly symbolic at the time, that I'm kind of leaving the old and washing away the old, embracing the new, and I'm raised to a new life, and my new life is following Christ. The second tenet was that we follow his command to love one another. Jesus says love encompasses all the commands. All you have to worry about is loving one another. It's the great command. And, uh, and that's the cause of Christ. That's the cause of the early church. And third, it was really about a community, a new community of love and service. And that's what Ephesus, the church at Ephesus, strove to do, to be a new community. So Ephesus, in the book of Ephesians, is really, it's a vision of a new unified humanity identified by love. When we read the book of Ephesians, know that it is this multi-ethnic Jew and Gentile collaboration on a journey together to live as a new humanity identified by love new way of looking at humankind. It embraces all ethnicities, but lives together as a new humanity. It's truly about togetherness. The book of Ephesians is about togetherness. Just to remind you, it is that happy feeling of affection and closeness, experiencing life in harmony of relationship and harmony of common cause. That's what the book of Ephesians is all about in the middle of racial tensions. It's a spectacular book. So let's quickly go over the teaching of Ephesians, and again, we'll just handle the first couple of verses here. The teaching of Ephesians is, in fact, a roadmap. It's a roadmap of radical reformation toward radical togetherness. Ephesians 1.3. After Paul says hello, he gets right into it. Ready? Notice the us's and the we's. And just think in your mind, as, as, as the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talks about the us's and the we's, he's saying specifically Jew and Gentile, all races and ethnicities, we are the we. We are the us. That's the context. All praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. We are united with with Christ. We are united. There's been a lot of discussion in our own kind of ranks about why did we start calling ourselves Rancho United? This was, gosh, a year or so ago. Are you going to change the name of the church? And our answer is, I don't know. I don't think so. You know, Rancho is an older name. It's the name of our city 30 years ago, but we kind of kept it and it's nice and there's a heritage there. But what are we really about? We are about being united, as we say, around the cause of Christ. 
That's all out of Ephesians chapter 1. We are united. It is very exciting. Now, if you look at the evangelical church, that's not a lot of unity going on. We're split into 37,000 different denominations all over the world. We fight about everything. We fight about doctrine. We fight about politics. And I know what a lot of you are thinking, and I agree with you. Scott, some of what you've said over the past you know, week or so, and even way, way earlier than that, this is not a new subject for us at all, um, that some of the things you've said may not create unity and harmony. In fact, somebody this week kind of called me out on that, is that, Scott, you talk a lot about unity, but then you're kind of hammering you know, the evangelical church a little bit, and I say, I know, and I'm sorry, and I don't know what to do about it. Because there are times, and we read a time in Jeremiah, when God calls his people to reform and repentance. There are certainly times in the New Testament, I mean a lot, read the first chapters of the book of Revelation, where the Spirit of God is calling the church to reform and repentance. And I'm not saying that from any kind of pride. Remember what I said, I'm in the process of ever reforming. So I'm not saying I've arrived anywhere, but I'm learning and I'm growing and our church is learning and growing. Our board of elders is learning and growing. Our pastors are learning and growing and we wanna learn and grow. But sometimes the word of God says something needs to be confronted. There needs to be repentance. There needs to be a change of heart and a change of mind. And the change of heart and change of mind is for the Protestant evangelicals to stop the culture of division and to start the culture of unity, which says everybody is welcome. And I'm gonna treat everybody as though they're in Christ. What if we saw everyone as united in Christ? What if we saw everyone as united in Christ? Whatever their skin color, whatever their politics, Whatever they do with their lives, I am going to make a decision. I'm treating every single person alive, in the church or out of the church, as united in Christ. Now, they may not yet believe Christ, but I believe the work of Christ is strong and powerful in their lives, and so I'm going to treat them as though they're united with Christ. What if we did that? Ephesians 1.4, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. What was this? This is a confrontation of the Jewish people who thought they were the chosen of God. This isn't about election and predestination. Have your arguments, I could care less. This is about God saying to everybody, I choose them all. I chose the Jews first because I had to start somewhere, but they're to be a light to the nations. And they didn't by and large obey that calling. So through Jesus Christ, he brought the light to the nations. Through the Jewish people, God gave Jesus to be a light to the nations. Very exciting stuff. We are all chosen, Jew and Gentile, we're all chosen. So what if, what if we not only saw everyone as united in Christ, but what if we saw everyone as loved and chosen? Because the key to radical reformation is seeing people the way God sees people. Ephesians 1, 5, God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family and bring us to himself through Jesus Christ. That's what he wanted to do and it gave him great pleasure. Keep in mind, all of Ephesians is talking about racial reconciliation, so when when Paul, through the Holy Spirit, says us and we, he's looking to the Jews and looking to the Gentiles, and he's saying we are united and reconciled, not just because God chose us, not just because we're in Christ, but because we are adopted into his family. We are brothers and sisters. So what if we saw everyone as adopted into the family of God? Everyone. No matter your political persuasion, no matter your opinions, no matter your theology, no matter where you stand on these issues, no matter your, 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 your color of your skin. I'm going to choose to see everyone as adopted in Christ. And finally, Ephesians 1, 6 through 7. So we praise God for the glorious grace he's poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sin. So what if we just chose to see everyone 
as forgiven by the kindness and grace of God in Jesus Christ. What if that's just how we chose to see people? What an amazing thing that would be. That's togetherness. Radical reformation begins with seeing people the way God sees people. It's an extraordinary journey. So what can we do? Well, read Ephesians. I'd encourage you to read Ephesians every day during the series. Just get that sense of togetherness and understand the book of Ephesians is talking about racial reconciliation, Jew and Gentile, and all of the racial tensions are, are, are eased in Christ and then experienced in Christ. We can be together. Read Ephesians. I wanna also encourage you, search on YouTube, and I'll link this, we'll link this all over uh, Rancho's material. Uh, research and look at a 10-minute video called Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man. This is with linebacker uh, Emmanuel Acho, and he gives a great kind of 10-minute instructional video for white people. It is awesome. You've got to check it out. I also want to encourage you to read the book, Just Mercy. Read the book, Just, Mer Just Mercy. There's a, a movie if you don't want to read the book, but get that that experience, sort of that black American experience in your soul if, if you're not in deep relationship with a lot of people of color. Um, the other thing I'd like you to do is consider getting on the waiting list of our Be The Bridge groups. We have a lot of Be The Bridge groups, and this is about intentionally identifying where there are racial biases, intentionally building bridges with one another. It is an exciting thing to be a part of. There's a waiting list. There's a lot of people in line, but get on that list. And finally, we're putting our money where our mouth is. We started this week a racial justice fund. You can go to rancher.tv slash giving. Every single dollar given to the racial justice fund will go towards the cause of racial reconciliation. We have an exciting project emerging in Brooklyn, an exciting project that we've been already working on in Hemet, and an exciting new alliance that we're working on here in our own community. The first $25,000 of the racial justice fund is matched. Jenny and I gave the first $1,000 to the fund, so I wanna encourage us all, put our money where our mouth is, and in addition to your regular giving, uh, support the Racial Justice Fund. A lot of good things are gonna come as a result. Join a togetherness group, be a part of the journey here, uh, and God bless you as we continue through the book of Ephesians. It's gonna be a wonderful time together. We'll see you next week.